0: HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF.
1: Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left brain robots, right brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey.
2: Okay, good afternoon. Good Friday afternoon. (laughs) Let's do it. Ready to go. I love it. Well, before we get started, we might as well start with the, hey, by the way, this isn't investment advice. These are four people talking about markets and trading strategies and all kinds of fun stuff. And uh, you'll need to do your research on your own beyond that. And this is not investment advice. It's educational and hopefully informative. And with that said, turn over to you, Adam. To Great.
3: Yeah. Um, Well, Welcome to Marcos Bueno. Marcos, where are you uh, where are you coming to us today from?
4: Hi guys. Uh, I am in New York today. All right. I'm very awesome. excited to be here with you. Good. Yeah. Us
3: too. I'm excited to have you. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And um, I was noticing as I was sort of going through your um, your bio in preparation for this conversation that you actually have this really varied. Work experience, right? You've worked at prop desks and macro hedge funds, and and are now running, you know, your own your own fund. So, I thought it would be um, interesting to to us and to the people watching and listening to maybe learn a little bit about how um, you picked up some experiences and lessons um, along the way, and then how you um, apply those experiences and lessons to run your current strategy. So, maybe a good place to start is for you to. Uh, give us a little bit about your background and then maybe we'll pull on some threads.
4: Yeah, okay. Uh, so that's right. I have done a bunch of different things. Uh, some of it has been by design. Some of it has been random. Uh, so I- I'm an engineer, a mathematician, and so like it's undergrad and master. Um, I did some consulting, management consulting. I also got an MBA in finance and I have, i grew up in spain but i have lived in five different countries i went to school in france i worked all over europe i lived in the czech republic for some time Uh, i went to the states get my mba then i spent 10 years in london then i moved to new york for another seven eight years Uh, now i'm in between Um, yeah my kids have four passports Uh, so we are all over the place Um, career-wise Pre-MBA, I didn't really know much about finance. I was a management consulting in the telecom area. And when I went to Warden, I discovered finance, and that was interesting. And I learned about this place called Goldman. And I said, well, that's, I want to work there. And I was lucky to be, have an offer there. And I actually went to do M&A on oil and gas. I quickly learned that that wasn't for me. And I met some people at the trading floor and that was kind of cooler because they were working less. Uh, the job was more interesting, at least for me, and they were making more money. So it's kind of overall better. Um, so I was a goman for a couple of years doing uh, derivatives, exotic derivatives of the uh, multi-assets. So I was doing equities, I was in commodities, currencies, a little bit of fixed income. <clears throat> and I also then kind of realized that what I wanted to be was on the buy side. And that opportunity came at UBS and the prop desk, uh, the equity commodity prop desk. And even though it was a prop desk, the group I was in was a value oriented group. So uh, there we didn't do a lot of investments. It was <clears throat> very research oriented. We may may put a trade once a month. I travel all over the world meeting companies and in the commodity space I was an engineer that sort of like spoke to me so that was interesting uh, did it in mind oil fields refineries utilities nuclear plants blah 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 you name it and but like, doing the real fundamental work um, as a value investor that's and one of the things i realized I mean I made a lot of money very quickly and I thought it was I was very good and the reality was
2: I'm familiar with
4: that situation, yeah. I wasn't. What year was that? <laughs> that was 2005, 2006, uh, 2007. Um, looking back, I mean, already already, that at the time when 2007 started to occur, in 2008, um, I basically, looking back, realized that it was not so much my stock picking that was successful. It was that I was long a bull market. Um, And that told me that basically it was more important to determine whether we were in a bull market or a bear market than anything else. Uh, So he said, if it's a bull market, you don't want shorts and if it's a bear market, you don't want longs. You can do everything you want. Uh, Most of the time, your longs are gonna go down if it's a bear market and they're gonna go up if it's a bull market. So it's kind of, that is the macro perspective. Um, And it turned out that JP Morgan, The macro team uh, was looking for somebody with experience in equities, and they hired me out of UBS. I I joined JP Morgan. It was like a global macro, and I was the equity guys in the global macro team. Um, And what was interesting is that it had a complete change in perspective in terms of what a value guy does versus a macro guy. The value guy perspective, the underlying premise, is that I am right and the market's wrong. The macro guy has a lot more respect for the market and they will have views and they will have their opinions, but they will respect the market and they will be a lot they are a lot more disciplined when it comes to risk management and they have an opinion if the market does not respond in the way they expect they will carry it out mm-hmm. so that was a big that was a big learning for me um the risk management the management of the positions that you can have your opinion, but that's not gospel right that was a big problem of. Sort of like the fundamental guy that I was. Anyway, long story short, uh, on my commodity experience, I learned about currencies. I learned about other things. I didn't do any more singles, not not so much um, stock picking anymore. And it was more really macro. And and without me realizing, it was basically trend following. It's like you have a view. You put it on. It goes with you. You keep it if it doesn't go. Um, You cut it. Um, Years later, I realized that was what the trend followers did. But that's what trend followers do. But we can wrap it in a view, right? This is my view, and my view was wrong. Actually, you could actually give away with get rid of the view, and say the thing is going up, you get long. Things going down, you get short. And the reasons why are a lot less important than we think. It's just what it is. so I had a, I had a great run at JP Morgan. I was very happy there. Uh, but 2008, 2009 happened and the politicians were not very happy with us. And they say you, you, they created a Volcker rule and all the prop disks and all the banks were cut. So basically I was fired. We were all fired, laid off. Um, and I did other things. Uh, actually, I, I built a house during that time. But I was just Serendipity, uh, this hedge fund, Grand Capital, was opening in London. Um, and they hired me as the third person in London uh, to run a macro commodity book for them. started really small, and then it went up to almost a billion dollars. And Graham has this unique feature uh, thing, is that they combined the macro thing uh, with an old school turn following CTA. And that's where I got first exposed to systematic strategies Uh, I hadn't been exposed to them until then. And it resonated with me because of all the things that I have said, it's like basically at the end of the day, if you manage your positions well, uh, it doesn't really matter what you do. It doesn't really matter what your opinions are. The key to making money is managing your positions well. And ultimately it's just not let, don't let your losses get too big and just write your winners, let it go. And that's what they were doing systematically. So that was appealing. Um, but I didn't do that. It just planted a seed in my head um, that is sprouted maybe five or six years later. Because one of the things that I also did, I launched um well, I tried to launch a multi-manager fund. Uh Graham was a multi-manager. That is a, a beautiful business model. I think it's good for the man- for the portfolio managers, it's good for the investors, it's good for the owner of the business. Um, long story short, that didn't pan out. Uh, we had a cedar for a couple hundred million dollars that didn't follow through in their promise, so that project died um, and I was just kind of started managing my money and that idea that I had okay, this trend following idea that was so beautiful, and with my equity experience, i said i thought this this should really work in equities, right, in single stocks. Single stocks, we have a lot of them. There is always something that is trending. And the trends in equities, as opposed to futures, are very powerful. Like a stock can go from 10 to 100. Oil can go from 50 to 150, if you're lucky. Um, but equities can really have a lot of runway when they, when they trend because things happen. I mean, look, you have Jeff Bezos, or you have apples, you have... New technologies, changes, like, it, it can really go really far. So, <clears throat> so one of the things I did when I was managing my money uh, was develop this thing that I had thought in the past that I'd never really pursued until I had the time, uh, which is what is now Ascent, which is a trend following program for single stocks. And I started, I put 10% of my money on it at the beginning. And over time, it was really kicking my butt every single time. Like, everything I do from a discretionary side. It was never as good as the models. And so I put all my money in the models. It's like, you know what? It's better than me. And some other people learn about it and say, will you do that for me? And I said, yes. And that's how Ascend was born. And now it started with managed accounts. Now there is a, there is a hedge fund. Um, yeah, and that's basically I done engineering, consulting, Value macro derivatives trend following models with managers, so you name it. Wow, well, yeah. I hope that, that wasn't too boring. No, no,
2: that's no, no. Great. no. I, I wonder if, um, continuing on that, like the you, you've fallen into sort of a, a systematic rules based mindset, and philosophically, can you share why you think that's superior and uh, also share some of the The shortfalls where maybe you're looking at the rules that you have in place and you would like to uh, go outside those rules, right? And where, where are those points where the rules brush up against you as a practitioner with experience where you're, you're uh, maybe at a crossroads and what do you do in those scenarios? So, so two questions, which is a terrible thing to do to somebody, but the first one is systematic thinking. Why is that superior? then the counter to that is just sort of steel mining where you find that that runs into some uh, some 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 um, uh, abrasion with you as a practitioner.
4: Yeah, okay. So uh, why I think it's superior in my particular case is because the systematics or like rule-based approach gets me out of my own way. Uh, it gets rid of my EDC. And and, and that is driven by cognitive biases, opinions, the idea of conviction, the belief that that I am right and the market is wrong. Uh, It is a process that introduces a discipline, a discipline in which you never lose a lot. The only outcomes of any trade that I do is either I lose a little, I make a little, or I make a lot. I no longer have the, I lose a lot that can happen to a discretionary trader because we fall in love with trades, because we have opinions, because we have biases, because we have a hard time taking a loss. Those are the things that create a loss, a big loss. And And let me
2: push back on that a little, because one of the things that happens with trend following is, yeah, the losses are small, but sometimes it's, Small loss, small loss, small loss, small loss, small loss, small loss, small loss. I mean, at times when markets are in transitions or trends are in transitions, you get that death by a thousand cuts. So I, I want to push back on that a little bit in that. Um, how do you how do you think about that?
4: I think about it is a, that's life. Now, the right. good thing cost is to do a business. Yeah. The, the good thing about trend following is that uh, it's not a new thing. Uh, it's been around for decades so there is a real track record of decades of of it working right Uh, i haven't really seen anybody i'm sure that there are some people out there that do it i haven't really come across anybody that does it on single stocks because single stocks are different than the traditional futures but the methodology is really really solid for two reasons one again you you never get into a big loss and takes advantage of something that is a permanent feature of the market, of the stock market in particular. And there is always some trend somewhere. There is always some stocks that are doing well. Now that said, it's not a constant, right? Sometimes, I mean, not not. It, it's permanent, but it's not constant, right? That's sometimes you have these periods of sm- small loss, small loss, small loss, yeah. uh, but those are periods. Over time, there's always some stocks that are doing well. And sometimes we have a lot. Sometimes we don't have a lot. But it's permanent. It's, 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 it's a timeless, timeless feature stock market. So that is always there. And as long as you control your risk, you will be fine. I cannot tell you how much money we're going to make, but it kind of mathematically we, now, I think we're gonna and Marcos.
1: When you talk about trend and equities, are you just you're just getting out? You're not shorting the equity, right? When you talk about trend,
4: in this particular program, uh, it's either long or flat, and the reason yeah. being that uh, the the real asymmetry of returns, the real long right tail, is on the long side of equities, uh, yeah. and the investment program is not really meant is is not the philosophy is not to invest in equities. The philosophy is to use the stock market as a tool to make money, to extract returns from features of the stock market, and that comes from the long side, much more mm-hmm. than the short side. The short side, the, the risk reward is not as good. Yeah, oh, I, there question, is,
2: Mike. Yeah, I want I want to get to that next question, next which next was question is, right. So so we we have these periods of whipsaw. That's part of trend following, um, and then and systematic gets you out of your own way, disciplines your thoughts, disciplines your behavior. Keeps your losses small, but where do you find that you you bump into your rules from time to time as a practitioner and where they create maybe friction, or where you're like, oh, maybe I want to I want to modify this rule, or this would be a great rule to ignore at the moment. And so where where are the limitations okay. of the systematic thinking? And how do you bring your your experience as a practitioner to bear in those situations? Or
4: do you? I, I can tell you that. Every single trade that I make on this program feels wrong. (laughs) That's how you know it's right. Exactly. That's why it works, right? (laughs) Because every single trade is a painful trade when I'm buying, when I'm selling. Um, That is one of the reasons why it works, right? Because from a discretionary perspective, it's really, really hard. When something is trending up, we have a tendency to say, okay, next time it dips, I'll buy it. You know what? Probably when it's dipping, it's no longer, it's telling you something. Maybe. And when you're losing and it's going down, you always want to sell on a day up, right? Or say, oh, I want to wait for tomorrow. What happens? When it goes up, then hope comes back and say, you know what? Maybe now it's working, so I'm not going to sell it. So these are the typical cognitive biases. So I can tell you that every trade feels wrong. Uh, that is always a conflict I have. Now, I have been around for long enough to know that it's no longer a, a good trade is no longer a trade that makes money. A good trade for me is the one where I follow the rules. Now to I, I would be lying if I tell you that I don't have opinions, that I don't want to trade, that this is perfect because it's not. Now I keep a small, small account for me to trade, discretionary, to, to scratch that itch of having opinions and have, and that gives my, my sanity, if you will. The other thing I would say is that what I do is, in my opinion, a very good way of trading the market, but it's not the only one. Uh-huh. Um, there are other ways of making money. I just think that this one, in my opinion, is the one that gives me the most chances of success. Like... As a discretionary trader, I can see trades sometimes. I can have opinions and I can tell you maybe over a period of time, I will be better, but I don't think I can be consistent for years and years doing that. Uh, Some people may be able to do that. I have learned that I do not. Um, And and some other people make money in a different way, right? The The other way I think one should invest in equities. That makes a lot of sense. Is is value investing actually? Uh, but that is also really, really hard. And and value investing is founded on the same principles. basically you limit your downside. Uh, you only have small losses compared to what you can make. I mean, it's been it's been polluted. It's been confused. Value investing has been confused with low multiple investing. Right? That's different. Uh, value investing is really, really hard because. Uh, you really have to have a, a real good insight on business and futures and uh, on the future and what a business can earn and management teams and things like that. That's very hard to begin with. And then the other thing that you have is very hard is to keep cap to have capital locked in for enough for long enough time for these things to work out because uh, you need a, a perspective of years in which you have positions that are small enough. And you keep long enough that the day-to-day or month-to-month volatility of the market does no matter to you. Now, that is really, really hard to do in a professional perspective where you have monthly reporting or quarterly reporting or even yearly reporting and the, and the money can come in and out um, at any moment, right? So value investing really is really, really hard because it's difficult to implement and it's difficult to get the capital that goes with it.
2: Yeah, it the, the, cur- be- the curse—the curse of OPM, the curse of other people's money. Yeah, so it really
4: needs—it really needs to be permanent capital and it needs to be really long term, and and it has to fit whatever. I mean, it has to fit your personality as a manager. Now, mine is not that. I learned that. Um, <clears throat> I, I just cannot. I don't want to go through big drawdowns. So my program is a lot more short-term. The average holding period is three months. Uh, We're looking sort of like at these medium-term trends. And and I'm happy with it. It works. But it's not the only only way you can make money in the market.
3: Yeah, what's so interesting about about trend um, in every market that you might apply trend to is that you're, to some extent, piggybacking off of the fundamental expertise of all of the other participants in the market. Right. There's a sometimes not every time. Well, I mean, to to some extent, there is a group of a, a group of investors who, you know, believe that they know something. They've done some some fundamental work, and they're and they're allocating capital. Um, certainly, there's lots of others that are just you know, um, tr- trading on patterns, right, like trend followers do, um, but. You know at the bottom of the stack there's there's somebody there that is presumably digging into the fundamentals of the supply demand dynamics of a commodity market or the competitive moat of a, a business that you buy you know the uh, ability for profit profits to expand contract margins uh, and um, the competitive position of the company to improve or be vulnerable that sort of stuff and and so you're able to piggyback on sort of the average of everybody who's trying to bring their expertise to bear um which is one of the things i like i really like what you said earlier and this sort of dovetails from that about the fact that value investing requires you to have a variant perception that says the market is wrong and i'm right and i think over time certainly we have um Come to the conclusion that most of the time the market is right and and uh, so that's that's why trend tends to work a little bit
4: more effectively. yeah, the market is right um, let, let's let's put it this way. the market is always right because no matter what we think, oh no matter what we think the market should do, uh, our p and l is only determined what, what the market does. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if the market is wrong. Mm-hmm. The market is wrong is that's the truth kind of thing. Yeah. It's like uh and we, yeah, we've yeah. seen it, that is something that is very hard to accept. Uh but the market is wrong if it, the market is right even when it's wrong. Because our P&L is determined what, what the market does. Our job as a money manager is not to find truth. It's not to f- to figure something out. It's not to figure out events or to predict events or to predict earnings or to predict fundamentals. That's not the job. The job is to predict prices. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and when we do all the fundamental work, what we're trying to do is to predict future prices. But the problem is that there is a lot of market participants for whom fundamentals are not a factor. True, yeah. So the market will behave according to the blend of all these market participants. Some of them will be fundamental players. Some of them will not. And some of them will be fundamental players, but they cannot act on it, for example. So that will be the blend. So our job is to understand all these things that get reflected on the price. And even if our fundamental analysis is correct, if everybody else is getting something else, that's the truth. So the market will be right, even if it's wrong. So the other
3: major complication that i always struggle with with discretionary um well discretionary macro or discretionary value investing you know traditional um analysis of of company fundamentals that sort of stuff is that it takes a lot of effort to dig into the fundamentals of a company to get to know the company you know to meet the management to call the suppliers and, and um call the um, clients. It's all, you know, there's, you, you have to sort of build a file and get to know this company and, and getting to know it and spending time with it makes you emotionally invested in it. And, you know, if, you, if you're going to devote a huge amount of time to something, it's really hard to um, let, let go. It go. When exactly. It, yeah, when, when it doesn't really go your way, right? And, um, you know, I think, Of all of the the potential challenges to any kind of discretionary thinking in markets, I think that may be the hardest one. Because no matter how smart you are um, and how big your team is and and your edge, most people believe they have an edge and actually don't. If those who do have an edge, the edge is something on the order of maybe 51 or 52%, right? So 52% edge is actually a really substantial edge so long as you're trading over, you know, sufficiently uh, yeah. high turnover.
4: Yeah. Um, um, I, I can tell you from experience, personal experience, and uh, what I have seen others, uh, when I was a value guy, when I was a fundamental investor, I was very arrogant.
2: <clears throat> uh, it's almost it, required. I mean... You, uh, you you need to have emotionally overconfidence in yeah. order because a foray into the market is an expression of your overconfidence that the market is in fact right. uh, has not realized some set of facts that you have realized yeah, exactly. ahead of the market. I, I, I was I was a smart person. Was <laughs> I think <laughs> you're still smart. I, think I was you're still too smart. Market. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, smart it, until I realized how dumb I was. It, yeah.
4: It's it, it, it is an arrogant approach when I thought about it. Um, and, and it's difficult for the two reasons that you said, Adam. Um, one, imagine it's very, very hard to get all the information. But the thing is that when you get all the information, you may still be wrong. And, and, and I sometimes give this example. Like if in 2000, you knew what Amazon's earnings and cash flows and everything, all the fundamental metrics, all of them, for the next twenty years, if you had perfect foresight, which you didn't have, but imagine you had, and you said this is a company that is going to do really, really well over the next twenty years, and you bought it, you were still down ninety percent in the meantime. Mm-hmm. A couple so, times, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of useless knowledge. Yeah, the journey matters. Yeah, like it. it, it Even if you had perfect information and you were down 90%, you will think like, okay, this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine if you didn't have perfect information and you didn't, and we were down 90%. It's like, it's just not possible. So even when you have all the information, you may still be losing 90% of your money. I mean, that's that's not a great method, if you think about it. It's not successful when you have other people's money and transient capital. Exactly. That, That doesn't work. So that's, that's one difficulty. And the other one, exactly what you said, when you have invested so much time and effort into an idea, first of all, it's very hard to not, let's say you're interested in some name, you spend three months working on it. It's very difficult to say, you know what, all these three months that I did, let's not buy it. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people do that, but it's really hard not, it's pretty hard to do that. And then when you're in it and it's just not working and imagine you're in this Amazon, you're down 10, 20, 30%. It's like, it's really hard to let go, as you say. So this is a, a cognitive bias that is that it's present in all of us. We are wired to do that, to hold on to what this sunk cost, um, and that's really dangerous. That's it's very very difficult because of that. Now the systematic approach gets you gets rid of that and focuses on what is really important, which is the management of the trade once you have it on. Uh, and you have a systematic discipline risk management process, uh, you can even take random trades, inequities in particular, because they, they trend. You could take random trades and keep the ones that are working and get rid of the ones that are not working, and ultimately you will make money. Now, taking random trades is not really ideal, but if it works on random trades, if you improve your trade selection, then you'll you'll make even more money. The way I did that is basically um, the best indication that a business is doing well is that it's doing well. Same thing with a stock. Uh, Stock can go up for many reasons, but the best indication that a stock may continue to go up is that it's already going up. Because that gives us good odds that something good is happening. It can be a good operator, good technology, a fad, whatever. But a stock that is trending up, stock or a commodity or anything oh. that is trending, trending is a reflection of a change that is happening. Change tends to be gradual; it takes time. It's just diffusion of information. When we see a trend, chances are that the trend will continue. Sometimes are you
3: incorporating it. any um, any fundamental trend? like um, earnings momentum or anything like that into your process?
4: Uh, there is things like that. I don't want to say too much, but it's not anything related to multiples or earnings and things like that. It's like, I'm looking for, I mean, to put it simply, good stuff. Right, just so, so maybe, the market maybe we can,
2: maybe we can, um, because we <clears throat> I, I want to make sure we get right into some of what you actually do. And maybe you can just start from the beginning um, uh, we've got a great question from, uh, Matt Hollerback too, on how do you size positions? And I want to get there, but I kind of want, I, I think Marcos, if you could just walk us through to the extent that you can share. So we understand there's some of the stuff that you're going to want to keep behind the veil of secrecy. Um, uh, but how do you initial positions, like where do you get your initial ideas? How, is it a screening system that you're running? Are you looking for price momentum, earnings momentum? What are the things that you're generally looking for in the good stuff bucket? And then once you've got an idea, as Matt says, well how do you size it in the portfolio and then the next question that follows on to that is once the trade is on what's the trade management um, situation when you have a big winner how do you how do you how do you uh, adjust for that do you let it run do you trim it how do you trade manage in in that risk management so maybe just walk us through your general sort of set of criteria from the beginning to the end, and then we can kind of poke and prod as we go through. Sure, sure.
4: I, I think that um, I, will, I will give you a little bit of context of how this was born. And this I, I introduced a little bit, but basically one of the biggest weaknesses that I realized I had. I mean, when, I, when, when you're a junior trader, you have weaknesses, you don't know what they are. As you mature as a trader, you start to learn about your weaknesses, and you try to avoid your weaknesses. And then as you get even more senior, you say, okay, how do I fix my weaknesses? My biggest weakness is that I am kind of a grumpy guy. And I am a bit of a skeptic when it comes to this. I'm not a big believer in things. It's like, "Mm, I always see the downside. I always see the risk. Um, And that was a real hindrance for me to be long things that always looked too expensive. And also because I was a a value, I started as a value that sort of like color my vision of life of investing. So I I missed out of a lot of opportunities of things that were going that did great, but I always thought I had missed the boat that was too expensive. We're going to come down and I missed in 2003, I looked at Apple, and it had gone up 100% in the year before, and I said, you know, I missed that. Amazon always looked expensive to me. I never bought it. So this was a real cost. Um, so one of the things that, the way, one of the reasons I did this is to just get out of my own way, and I knew that I needed to get on these trends. And as long as I could manage the risk, um, I will do fine. But I couldn't do that from a discretionary perspective. I, I had to get out of my own way. Anyway, because I'm always kind of grumpy, uh, my number one concern is I did not want to be long anything that was going down. I only want to be long things that are going up. If they're not going up, I'm not interested. So that's the genesis of the model. The model is that everything that is not going up is just not part of the universe. So. The model is looking at all the U.S. stocks about a certain market cap and liquidity, and if it's not going up, it's just not even considered.
3: So, can I can I just sort of press pause there and maybe sure. pull pull on that thread a little bit? So, going up is is, I think, very hand wavy, right? So, yeah. um, can you say a little bit more about <laughs> how you quantify um, when when stocks are, are going up, and maybe just to to frame this a little bit? And given that you came uh, at the development of this strategy, from a background in in observing futures trend following, maybe I, I'd be curious about how you've adapted your trend process from traditional kind of futures trend to be more effective with equities. So maybe,
4: yeah, um, I, I think one of the harder things for trend is defining what the trend is. Uh, this is one of the things that uh, you can show a five-year-old. We can always see, okay, this is this this stock is trending. But how do you really tell that to a computer, right? It's like, like we we can see a pretty person, and we all recognize a handsome or pretty man or woman. But to tell a computer what that is, it's kind of hard. So that was one of the things I first struggled with, and in the end, I went with a very very strict definition of trend that. Uh, captures that it makes sure that everything I capture is in an uptrend. It will not capture all the trends, but it, it will make sure that what I capture is a trend. So I kind of went, like at, at the beginning, I was talking, you okay, how do I define a trend? I want to make sure my initial thoughts were, OK, let's let define a trend. So if I give stock to the computer, it will tell me if it's a trend, not trend, or not. And that's kind of hard. I, completely changed my mindset and say, OK, I don't care about capturing all the trends. I, I want to make sure that what I capture is a trend. So that simplified the problem quite a lot. Um, so it's a very, very strict definition of trend. Uh, only a few stocks will meet that definition. Uh, but the good thing is that when it does, it is a trend. It's kind of, I wish I could say more, but then I sort of like spill the beans. Uh, but-
3: Well, maybe maybe just- um, is what, what, I'm for,
4: what I'm looking for. Let's, let's look at this. Sure, way. Sure. What, I'm, what I'm looking uh, for is uh, when a stock is entering what I call a new regime. When a stock is going through a process that is new. That when, when we enter a new regime, there is information in the fact that we're getting into a new regime. So it will translate in things like breakouts, for example. It will translate. It's not always breakouts, but uh, it will capture breakouts. Basically, it's, it's entri- something happening in a stock that uh, has information. We're getting into a new area, a new regime. Something is different. And that has the advantage versus momentum that it can actually potentially get us at the beginning of a trend versus momentum. The momentum will get us already in a trend. It may be late. Uh, the trend-following approach, um, some of the classic ones, uh, will get you at the beginning of a trend. So I think that's the most important number one criteria uh, is that it's, not, it's going up. I'm not interested in anything else. Now, one of the difficulties as well that it took me some time to crack is that as opposed to futures, in equities, you have a lot of equities. In futures, you maybe have 50, 60 markets, 100 if you push it, but let's say 50 markets. So you only have 50 to choose from. In equities, just in the States, you have like 5,000. Now, you don't want to have a portfolio of 200 stocks. You want to have a portfolio between 20, 30 stocks concentrated but not too much but you don't want to have like a you don't want to have 1000 fa- stocks in futures you don't have that problem because you only have 50 so maximum you only have 50 the only the other big difference between single stocks and futures is that stocks are correlated and futures are not mm-hmm. for the most part so you can you can do your 50 futures and apply the same independently to each of them and you will now have a lot and you will be uncorrelated in stocks is not the case you have stocks you have a lot and they're correlated so how do you pick only a handful of stocks and how do you make sure that to, that they are uncorrelated to one another as much as you can right because let's say utilities are trending and you end up with 30 utilities in your portfolio you don't really have 30 trades you have one
3: so are you enforcing some sort of sector constraints or are you doing this Using some kind of quantitative clustering or some kind of I don't, I don't do
4: sectors, but I try to there is a method in it that with the goal of diminishing the correlation among the positions. and I'm looking to have sort of like a distinct idiosyncratic driver for each position.
3: So you use the word idiosyncratic. Um, I mean one of the one of my absolute all-time favorite um, equity, Systematic equity strategies is idiosyncratic momentum or residual momentum, right?
4: Yeah, um, idiosyncratic trend. Because I don't have yeah. like momentum, right? I'm okay. looking for trend. Idiosyncratic trend, because yep. idiosyncratic reduces the correlation across positions, and that's what. So maybe just,
3: is. if would you mind explaining that? Um, if you don't want to go into your exact process, just sort of yeah. the general idea of of residual
4: yeah, the, the, yeah. uh, the the idea <clears throat> is to. the extent possible and again we're we're this is a numbers game we don't have precision but precision of on an individual trade but over over time the numbers work to the extent possible what i'm looking for is that every trend is driven by something different and i'm looking to have something that is driven by an idiosyncratic driver for that stock that's where the, quote, unquote, fundamental consideration comes in. It's like it has to be something related to the stock. And it, 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 it cannot be a macro. It cannot be a sector driver. It has to be something that is unique to the stock, that is idiosyncratic.
3: So the idea is, or a, a, an approach to sort of get get to that would be to residualize the... Each of the individual equity returns um, against the market, the sector, maybe the subsector, maybe a handful of macro variables, right? So maybe rates, crude, that kind of stuff. And now you've got a um, you've got a, a return series that reflects the very specific idiosyncratic features of that of that company.
4: That's a way of doing it. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> and,
2: and, and you, and you, but you do have a, a systematic way to do it. We you, you can't yeah. disclose it; it's behind yeah. the veil. But it's, yes. it is. Yes. There's a, yeah. there's a process that you're going the through. That, so, yeah.
4: and and what it translates into is kind of what some people say: like hire slow and fire fast. Because I'm a Grampy's yeah. Carity cat kind of guy. I am always playing from the perspective of being conservative. Look, I am very reluctant to put cash to work. It has to be very special opportunity, and that means that it needs to meet a long list of criteria before the money comes in. On the other hand, when it comes to exiting positions, I'm also very shy, and I will get rid of positions very quickly. And the only criteria for exit it's price. If it's not performing, it's out. I don't care about anything else. I don't care about the story. I don't care about the fundamentals. I don't care about the earnings or beating beating expectations about, I don't care about any, I don't care about relative performance. I don't care about anything, except it's not performing. So I am very shy to come in and I'm very shy to keep it in. So I'm very quick to take it off. So it's always trying to be conservative, among other things, because I have all my money in it, I don't want to lose it. Uh, so it's always playing conservative. It's always playing on the, on the defensive. And that means that it doesn't really get into big drawdowns. And because it will stay with trades as long as they work, you have this asymmetry in returns where you can really get long, long good returns, but you never get a bad, a really bad i will show that chart, if you don't mind. Uh, that chart that I, I show you, yeah. So this one, so I have this chart here. So this is the the result of all the trades we have done since we started about three years ago. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we lose. Let me see. Sometimes we lose here. Mm -hmm. These are all our losing trades. A couple of them got big because of gap risk, but the majority were very small. And then we made money in about 55% of the trades, so about 50%. Uh, We make a little bit of money here. And this is where the money is really, really being made, which is here right. in this right tail of returns. And this basically guarantees that over time, because you never lose a lot, well, you're hey, winning trades. With like,
2: yeah, let's dig into that a little yeah, bit because right. there's a couple of things there that relate to Matt's question. That so we've got a very high bar to get into a, a trade into the portfolio. Exactly right We've got a second bar, which is an idiosyncratic uh, bar for trade two, three, four, five, six, and now we're putting the trade on. How do you think about the position size for those trades that you've got on, right? And and then the other thing is when that trade is in your favor, so it's great. I bought at ten, my stop was nine, but now it's fifteen, and even though you know my trade is profitable when i'm putting that pnl and sending that statement to those clients they now have internalized $15 as their money yeah so so now we have the initial position size that we've got to determine and the trade management as it goes along because that that $10 price fades into the into the rearview mirror quickly as we're at $20 and now we're 50% away from the initial trade position so yeah how, 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 do you, how does yes. this cascade through those decisions?
4: Yeah. I, uh, one thing that is important to say is that in the majority of conversations that we have with investors and the investing public has, most of the time is spent on how do you pick your trades, which we just discussed. Yeah. To be honest, that's the least important part of it. Yeah. Well,
2: you, you said, you've said you have a 55% success rate. Yeah, right? So you have 55% of your trades are winning. So that's not where the the juice is coming from. Exactly. The juice is coming from the right tail of those trades that paid you an asymmetric payoff and you kept them and you and truncated the left tail. Yeah, exactly. you beat those good trades to death and truncated the the losing
4: ones. So I went from let's say 50% hit ratio on a random uh sample to 55. 55 45. It's a significant improvement, but it's nothing to write home about. Because in this case, and in any case, what really matters is what happens after you put the trade on. And that's one thing. And the other thing is something you, Mike, said: is how you size your trades. Like the sizing really, really matters. Uh, And the truncating, basically, not getting the losses very very, very, getting the losses too, getting too big. Now, on the sizing, um, when I was a discretionary trader, and when I do some of the discretionary trades on the side, we have this concept of conviction, right? And that's wrong. (laughs) That's wrong because we do not know the future. And anybody that has been in the market for some time will tell you that they are surprised about what are the trades that work and the trades that don't work. And there is not that much correlation between what we think it is going to work when we put the trade when, and what actually happens later. And even the best investors get it wrong. It's like, Bill Ackman's best ideas were Valiant and Herbalife. He really believed in them, I'm sure, but they didn't work. And that happens to him and that happens to everybody. So. Conviction is a very dangerous game. Uh, Sizing by conviction, as I I used to do, I think it's a bad method. Uh, What I do is I size all the trades the same. I don't try to optimize. I think optimization is a very dangerous game. I'd rather be robust. And because I don't know what's going to happen, and because all of the trades that are getting to the portfolio have cleared the high bar, they're all equally good to me. So they're all... Marcos, just just to clear...
3: Are you always fully invested? It sounds like no, you're not.
4: No, yeah. not. I mean, that's another thing that is wrong. But well, we can talk so about. So you're now.
3: you're equal weighting them, but it's but it's really you're when you're in a trade, that trade gets a certain fixed amount of capital.
4: It gets a... Let, let me elaborate. It gets. Yeah. A, is, it fixed, a it, it yeah. Gets is it a risk weighted? It gets a fixed amount of risk. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's not a risk because not stocks and any market really have their personalities, right? Um, so there is a. What is in effect is uh, vol weighting, right? Volatile stocks get less dollars and less volatile stocks get more dollars. But in terms of risk, I'm always risking the same amount of capital on every trade. Uh, Energy it,
1: companies get a lower allocation, it, utilities get a higher allocation base. Well,
4: it, it would depend on their...
1: I'm
2: it, assuming it would depend on their volatility at the moment yeah, that yeah. you're putting the trade on.
4: Yeah, it, it depends on a number of factors. Uh, it's not a naive volatility weighting, but ultimately what it means is that every trade gets the same risk allocation. And at, at this time, we're running at 75 basis points per trade. So every trade we put on, we're going to risk 75 basis points. And that is basically what we would lose if our initial stop gets hit
2: yeah
1: 75 basis points of standard deviation oh. so <clears> nope. 75
4: capital. basis points of the capital yeah
3: so in in the event that all of the you, you, you own 20 stocks in the event that all those stocks get get stopped out tomorrow you're in a 15% loss position now, that's kind of the way that
4: It'd yes, around yeah, 20 if, if we enter all of them today yeah. and we get all stopped out, all of them today, that will be the answer. The reality is as the trades move up and down, uh, our in, the, the risk in the trade will change. And sometimes the trade, uh, the risk will get smaller and sometimes it'll get bigger. And that goes to the question of Mike was saying, is that what do you do with trades that do really well? Too big. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, the orthodox trend following will tell you nothing. It will tell you do nothing. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing that that's happening. Uh, and that's how I started. But stocks are not futures. Stocks have nasty behavior sometimes. Um, and as you said, there is the reality of other people's money and the reality of drawdowns and that when you get it let's say if you start with 100 and you make two you make you go to 200 and then you go back to 130 you still make 30 but some people will think that you lost 70. Yeah mm-hmm. so so now now I, I change some things and I do when when a trade gets too big because it's doing too well that means that I have an oversized risk in one stock I'll bring it back in line with the rest of the portfolio. So there's a threshold. There is a threshold at which point basically you have too much concentration risk. And because there are stocks and any stocks in my heuristic, any, any stock can fall 50% in a day. That's my kind of rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if one of my stocks fall 50% in a day, obviously I will have a very bad day, uh, but that shouldn't kill me. Obviously it hurts. It shouldn't kill me. Now, when that number gets too big, it needs to be brought down because any stock tomorrow can fall 50%. So if I have, let's say, for argument, say I start with a 5% weight and it's gone to 10 or 12, that's too big. Because if it falls 50%, I have a down 6% day on one name. That's not mm-hmm. really acceptable. So basically, it. What effectively happens is that I sell some of it, take money off the table, and I bring it in line with the rest of the portfolio. So I don't have an oversized risk in any one name. So
1: Marcos, can I just take it back for a second from you know, a practitioner in the markets? I'm always curious as we start exploring and you're an engineer, you get curious, you start tweaking what you want to do and you, you come to whatever you're managing. You know, I went down a similar path to you, but I didn't stop there. I was too curious about the low correlation of asset allocation of futures contracts. Like I just went a little further and added more diversification and created more things. What What about the other more traditional long, short trend following? Uh, it was not attractive to you when contrasting where you decided to make your your career?
4: Um, there are two reasons why I did it in stocks. One is that I had experience in stocks. I had developed some insights as to how, what are those, when, what does it mean when a stock gets into a new regime, as I said before. Um, so that was kind of unique. Uh, I hadn't never seen anybody doing that. Trend following in futures, I didn't really have a lot to add. Really, it's like uh, I had something to add here, and I thought it was unique. I was less players involved. Um, I thought, I mean, to use to be a a bit cliche, there was more edge. Even though I don't really believe in kind of that thing, but basically it's like there's less people doing that, and and I also think that the trends in stocks are more powerful than anything else. Yeah, we can so you, we can have stocks really doubling in a month, whereas it's hard to find that in futures.
1: So so this may this is one of the things we talked earlier about how you, when you were being when you were in a value manager during 2005, two thousand five six seven, you realized you were in a bull market, and that's why you did well. Right? So the autocorrelation is strong. There's trends, positive trends everywhere. What happens in a market like 2000 to 2003? What happens in a Japan-like scenario where that idea that equities trend may go away
4: for more than a little bit? Um, That's a good question. Indices do trend. Um, Single stocks do trend, but single stocks, we have a lot of them. And there is always some stock that is trending up because there is always some entrepreneur that is doing things differently. There is always somebody that is eating or getting market share. There's always something new that is happening. There is always some winner in somewhere.
2: Schumpeter's creative destruction.
4: Creative destruction. That is
3: true, but like...
4: Now no, 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 the, no, no, no. okay go ahead. Let me yeah. finish. Yep. So now in a bull market we will have a lot of these stocks and I will be very heavily invested and that's good. Uh in a bear market when most things are going down I will not be heavily invested and that's even better. So what happens in a in a bear market what happens in a 2000 to 2003 scenario Most likely I will be under invested and that's okay. Because it's better to be underinvested than losing money. That's my philosophy. And that's why, going Adam to your point before, is that I'm not always fully invested because I have no interest in, being in, in having less money than today than yesterday. If it means that there's no opportunities that I think are good, it's just better to not take them. It's just, it's, it's, from 2000 and 2003, if you were not invested, you did better.
2: Well, well it's interesting, but there's a regime shift there too two thousand to two thousand and three there were absolutely trends developing in oil and yeah. and um international real estate and that was probably one of the i'm pretty mean, good the problem is that regime shift portion
3: it's the japan right? scenario it's thirty years of of declining markets right where that where that upward drift over time turns into a downward drift over time for yeah decades. i mean-
4: nothing not, not, it it has happened that the U.S. stock market has been in an uptrend, broadly speaking, for decades, but it doesn't have to be that up. Right. There's nothing, nothing tells us that trends have to go up. I think there's there's a belief out there that equities trend up over time. There is no reason why, actually. And in fact, I would say that most people that say that speak from a perspective of a US-centric mm-hmm. market, Definitely. which is actually the exception. Like if you look at most of their markets, they don't trend up. And there is no reason why any... In, I mean, the reason why it has trended up is because the US economy has been su- successful. Because it's been the most successful capitalist system out there, where we have these creative destructions and earnings have grown up over time. But things can change. Thing. it could be a Japan kind of economy. It could be uh, it could be an European kind of economy, or it could be South American type of economy, and we may be going in that direction because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of monopoly power and uh, wealth wealth disparities and stuff, and that's not conducive to wealth creation. And mm-hmm. anyway, I I, <laughs> I digress here. What I mean is that. Um, even in Japan, even in Europe, even in markets that have been sideways for 20 years, you will find stocks that are doing really well. Like you could see like LVMH in Europe or even SoftBank At some periods. There's always some stocks that are doing well. And ultimately for me, in any case, it's just better to not be invested than investing in something that is going down. I don't need to be invested. I, I don't, I'm not doing this to invest in equities. I am doing this to harvest returns using the stock market features as a mm-hmm. tool to make money. And sometimes it will be fertile environment and sometimes will not. But and if everything, everything's everything gone down, when everything's gone down, I think I, I will ha- not have a lot of returns, but I will not have, let's say, negative returns.
2: Yeah, no, I think I think that's clear. Absolutely. And there, there's, there's actually a good question here too from uh, Hello Again, which is uh, with systematic systems, how does one handle large tail events? Right, even if your system tries to minimize correlation and whatnot, you have a large tail event. Let's uh, October '87. Um, how do you probably mentally prepare for that? I'm sure some of that comes from the 75 basis points per trade, right? That's a risk management uh, philosophy before you even start. But how would you address that uh, question? From
4: yeah, um, my biggest, my biggest, uh, the biggest risk of any. Equity investment, active, passive, you name it, is that kind of scenario. Like an overnight 25% crash, right? Or 50% crash. I do worry about that. Um, There is a hedge for it, which is basically the daily clickets. Where you buy a daily put, 10 percent out of the money, 15 percent of the money, uh, it can be hedge. Now this hedge is not free. It's actually quite expensive. Um, that's the only way of getting rid of it. So it's kind of something we have to live with. Uh, right. But:
3: Well, I guess you could also uh-huh. kind of just short whatever whatever approximate beta you have on the long side you could short. Yes, futures against it. And, and then you're only generating, you know, uh, alpha.
4: Yeah. Right? Um, we, we actually, uh, for some time, I had a program like that. I had a program that was market neutral. Uh, neither me nor the investors that were running it ended up liking it.
3: Of course not. We've had a 10-year massive bull market. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody loves Uh, hedges during a bull market. uh,
4: No, no, that's one reason. But the the main reason was that I was introducing a risk that I could not control.
3: The basis risk of the ES beta versus the portfolio, sure.
4: Now, uh, because, I mean, so far I have been outperforming the indices, but that's not really the goal. The goal is really to make good risk adjusted returns. Uh, The risk is... This is not a program to outperform, this is a program to make money. Like, um, It has the possibility of outperforming and it will definitely outperform on the downside because it will be out of the market. Uh, so it has kind of this call option profile when the market is going up, you're long, when the market is going down, you're like flat. Um, and it has outperform, but that's not the goal. But when you introduce a short leg, let's say the market or a beta or whatever, you you introduce market risk. And then you are trying to capture the outperformance, which is really not the goal. And sort of like if then then we no longer really know what we are betting on. And that was kind of the learning of it. It's like we get we can we get rid of one risk, but we introduce another one that we don't like either. So it was kind of like okay, we stopped it at the end of the day, it's like um I had some of my money in it to try it, then I have other investors in it. And in the end we just like we didn't like it. Like we didn't like it. Bottom line. Uh now that that risk, the overnight kind of crash is there. Uh is there you are long the SP, your long uh portfolio is if you don't have shorts, is there? Uh, if you don't have these daily clickets, is there. Um one of the things I've noticed though is that these kind of things happen when we are already in a downtrend. Even, even the crash of 87 happened after a period of deterioration.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, in 29, it also happened. It didn't happen in a day, uh, but it, there was a moment of weakness in the market that lasts for a, some time. And then, boom, it happens. It happened in 2000 and. 12, I remember in gold, we had the crash in gold. Uh, gold had been weakening for months and months. And it's basically these kind of things happen when the market gets get really fragile. And it typically happens after a period of weakness and then something cracks. Uh, this program is pretty good at getting out of things. So for example, in the, when we when the market fell 35% in 2020, it got out of everything in about two weeks. Uh, in the last three months, it basically got out of everything in, in a few weeks. So if we are no longer in an uptrend, I will be much lighter in terms of investment than if we're in an uptrend now. Can it really happen on a day in an uptrend? It can happen, but it's less likely.
1: Gentlemen, I've been nice. called away, so I'm gonna leave yep. you guys to it. Thank always. you, Marcos. That's yep. awesome. I'll Thank continue you. to listen live as uh, as I go do this yeah. thing. Okay, thanks guys.
4: Okay, bye.
2: You, bye. I guess this is a feature of the market, right? You're you're entering the market in this style of call it trading, and there's there's always trade-offs. Um and it's interesting, sort of March 2020 would have been a, a pretty good litmus test of that, going from a fairly Stable market to, um, you know, uh, quite quite a downturn as quickly as we've ever seen, and so, you know, you do have some experience. the The bottom line is, as you say, it hasn't happened in the past. It could, and you know, that's life. Yeah, I right. think it's 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 a good to internalize and explicitly address that and say, well, this is a vulnerability. It may not have happened, but so what do you do? Do you stay in the bomb shelter all day long and just sit on? hoard your cash at negative rates or, you know, what do you do? And and it, I, and it, it, the, I
4: the, what, what one should do is not have all the money in one program.
2: Correct. I was just going to say that. You're going to diversify across some other programs. You're going to have some other things that are doing totally different things to what you're doing. And this is a risk that you're willing to take in this particular strategy.
4: Yes, because, I mean, uh, this is a conversation that I have with people, investors and non-investors. It's like... Um there's this dilemma between, okay, should should be my investment program be quote unquote a complete program or not? And like my decision has been to be a specialist. Like and it's kind of restaurants, like restaurants, right? You wanna go to a, an Italian restaurant that is good, you wanna go to a Chinese restaurant that is good, or Japanese, whatever. You, if you go to a restaurant that can do everything, probably everything is bad. And I think that I do have a particular preference from what I do, but when I talk to people, I say this is not this should not be the only thing that you do. Is This should be a part of your portfolio, and you should have passive because it's really an efficient way of deploying capital, but you should have this and you should have other things, and you should create a portfolio with different pieces. Each of them is doing one thing, kind of a not, you, cannot have, you need to have specialists in your team, kind of thing. You need a quarterback, you need a defensive line, offensive line, whatever, and you cannot have 11 players that do all the same thing, because probably you are having mediocre players. So you can have specialists in each of them, and each of them will do one thing, and all of them will have a vulner- vulnerability, and the key is to make sure that they're not all the same.
2: Yeah, very good advice and and on another topic uh, you know, we were talking about position sizing earlier and and some folks may think 75 basis points is kind of small and um it's actually it's not i small. think it's not small right and and it, it, a position size of over 2% in any strategy generally leads to the a higher risk of ruin and so you know if you're not familiar with the the process of how you work the trade back through the portfolio side actually tom basso has a great piece called successful traders size their positions why and how and that's a pdf that's available from uh, basso's i think website for free but it walks you through the mathematics in a very simple format of why you know position sizing in that area is yeah. is is somewhat optimal and and how to think about working that position sizing back Thinking about the volatility of the underlying position. So, if those if those folks out there that want to dig into that a little bit more, um, that's a great yeah. a great start. Two percent.
4: I think two percent. Sometimes people talk about two percent, and I think it's really dangerous. And that comes back to your comment that you made. Is like you have a loss, 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 loss. Yeah. You have ten losses in a row at two percent. That's down twenty. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that's a lot. Um, Amit was asking, and I, I think this is a good one. And I know Jerry and the guys on the their, their podcast, I forget what it's called, Systematic Investor Podcast or something. Um, Jerry talks about how once you put the position on, you don't adjust the trade as the risk goes up, right? So um, Amit's asking, if you're holding equal vol weight, oftentimes as a uh, stock enters a new regime, you're, you've got this vol expansion, right? So you've got the kind of the vol before it's in the regime and now it goes to a different vol regime. Maybe it's, you know, it, it presumably you're mostly going to get upside vol, right? But are you reducing or or managing the size of your position um, in the context of changing vol? Or are you, once you put the, the trade on, then, it, you know, you've got a you're sizing it based on that 75 basis points of risk based on the initial vol estimate.
4: I don't, except for what we said when the risk gets overweight in one position, because there are two things that can happen. Uh, Vol decreases. Not a dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. I don't need to increase the size. Um, The other one is vol increases. If it increases to the upside, that's good for me because I'm making money. If it increases to the downside, I hit my stop. So my stop does not move because of the vol has expanded. So once I put on the trade, the vol regime is either favorable or neutral. I mean, a change in vol regime is either favorable to me or neutral. It's favorable if vol increases to the upside. It's favorable if vol goes down, and it's the same if vol increases and it goes down because my stop is based on a lower vol regime. So uh, I don't change it because it's only I, I only have positive optionality.
2: Gotcha. And and that's how you've created that sort of asymmetric return profile in the outcomes of your trades, really.
4: Yeah. Though that is basically a construct of the stock market. Like, if you buy a stock at a ten, you can only lose ten, but you could make fifty, hundred, thousand. You could. There's no limit to the upside, really. Mm-hmm. And we have seen some of these things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't happen overnight. They don't happen overnight, but they do happen. Now, if instead of risking ten, you're risking, let's call it two, then it's even more asymmetric. But the asymmetry is already embedded in in the in stocks you know, let's, let's say let's say the currencies don't have this feature. Mm-hmm. Um, bonds don't have this feature, but stocks do. Right. Gotcha.
3: Um okay. I think we've covered most of the things that you wanted to that that I wanted to chat about. Um
4: oh, yeah.
2: Are there any? Is there anything that we've missed, Marcos? Is there yeah. anything that, that you'd like to add as as part of the?
4: No, the- I'm. I'm um, I think the, if there is one message I want to tell people. Kind of the insight that I have had in all these many years is that the real important thing is not the investments that you make, is how you manage the investments that you make, and that applies to trading, investments, life, anything. You- all of the glory, all of the focus is on the stock picking, your entry, what are the investments, is it a good investment, bad investment. The reality is, in when especially when there is liquid markets like stocks, that doesn't really matter that much. What really matters is your size, how you manage the trades, and that's the sizing, and that's how you exit. It's making sure that you don't lose a lot, you don't lose too much in any single investment, and then when things are working, let them work. Um, and sometimes I do these analogies like stock picking for show and risk management for dough, <laughs> like in golf, right? Everybody is in all the guy that can do a 400 yards drive. drive. yeah. But those are not the, that's not the shot that win the, the tournament.
2: Yeah, that's great. And this so is it's, the thing. It's, yeah, it's, it's, Stock picking for show, risk management for yeah. Doe. What was it? Yeah. What was the yeah, yeah, risk yeah. management?
4: Yeah. Risk management for Doe. Oh, you can say trade trade, trade, manage, trade tra- management. Tra- tra- for dough. Trade management.
2: Trade oh, yeah, management for Doe. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so that's
4: awesome. that's the one message that I would say. Now, if you want to talk about current like current markets, whatever, or my discretionary views, I'm happy to do that too, Uh, because I have my opinions. I do not act on them, but I do have them. Well,
2: let's hear it. Sure, you brought it up. Yeah. All right. We, we, we have those same opinions as well and we don't yeah, have yeah. them, so it's just a bit of fun. It's always yeah. a little bit of uh, brain candy.
4: Um, one of the things I make I like is uh, making fun of myself because I'm a kind of a gold bug. Right? Uh, and I've seen in, in some other podcasts you're talking about gold and stuff. Why is gold not working? Uh, what <clears> happened <throat> to gold? We have on all this inflation and stuff. And, and as I'm Commodity, macro, had uh, precious metals have been always one of my favorites. Uh, that's where I make the most money because uh, it's a very psychological asset, gold in particular. And I was I was listening to some of your podcasts and it's like, why is not working? And I was li- and like, it is very simple why it's not working because people are not interested. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it's really dumb. It's really dumb, but it's kind of, kind of like... Any market, be it stocks, commodities, gold, currencies, um, is determined by how many buyers, I mean the balance of buyers and sellers, right? And how enthusiastic buyers and sellers are in relation to each other. And in particular, in a trade in, in in an asset like gold, um, that doesn't have any you know, at first approximation does not have any economic benefit, right it doesn't it doesn't yield anything it has negative carry, but let's, let's say that it's not no as it's simplest, no carry no 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 dividend, nothing no utility. It has some utility, but let's get that at a, at a much lower price um the only reason why it moves is because people like it or do not like it. There's no reason for it. There is no rhyme or reason to gold. It's very psychological. Um, It's only the only thing that moves gold is what people think. And if people if people think that gold is going to go up, they will buy it. And if they think (laughs) (laughs) there is there is not a price at which gold is attractive or not attractive. It's not. It's not a stock at which you say, "Oh, it's paying a 25% dividend yield that is sustainable." I cannot buy it. That it does not exist in gold. It's like gold at 2,000. Gold at 1,000 is the same thing.
3: Well, yeah. I'll tell you. Speaking of gold, that um, there's, I get maybe one trade a year, like discretionarily that I'm, I'm, I get a real itch on, and um, I think it was what was it Wednesday morning or something? Was it Mike that I dropped the? the bill O'Neill, yeah, yeah. you know, multi-year cup and handle breakout chart of gold, um, just in advance of, uh, of Putin invading, or, you know, the forces yeah. invading Ukraine and said, I think the time is now, it's now- and, <laughs> and we're gonna, and, and, and I want to go buy some leaps. And I, I literally went to, and started setting up an a, a account to go to do that.
4: But, uh, I am personally bullish gold. I have been bullish gold for the last 10 years. So take that with a pinch of salt.
3: (laughs) I've been ambivalent gold the last 10 years, but I've been bearish stocks for the last 10 years. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt.
4: (laughs) Um, I do think gold has turned a corner though, because the reason why gold was not, people were not interested in gold is because they found something else that crypto, in this case, um, that would feel that need to hedge about whatever goal is supposed to be hedging, and uh, basically people got less interested. That what happened, I think. That's what happened. Now, I think crypto will ultimately disappear for the most part, um, and we can talk about that too. Uh, And so like gold will come back. People will realize that gold is the daddy of the protection against the valuation of the currencies. So they will come back. And I think that's why gold isn't working, hasn't been working, because people were not believers in it anymore. And there is no reason, there is no fundamental reason for it to go up other than people want to buy it. And they decided they don't want to buy it anymore. So that's why it didn't go up. And I think that psychology is changing a little bit. because. Because crypto is not leading up to the expectation that people had for it. Because
3: yeah, it's not uh, it's not acting as a risk-off asset or as an inflation hedge asset. It's acting like a high beta Nasdaq stock at the moment. Um,
4: yeah, I, I mean know. the crypto is is gold in its storage, <laughs> but it doesn't have the good things that gold has, which is real limited supply. Crypto, for all the things that they say. Uh, has unlimited supply, and we have seen it.
2: Well, now this is going to be a very controversial. This just went from a really nice podcast to a super controversial podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Because the, the, the crypto crowd has some fervor on all of this. So yeah, no, they do. They do. <laughs> yes, so it'll be interesting. To yeah. We'll market feedback. it as yeah. uh, Marcos
3: Bueno on crypto. Yeah. <laughs> what 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 are your uh, any equity views strong equity, equity views? I I don't I
4: don't have strong equity views right now um I can tell you that the model is heavily cash because um I sense that we have entered a new regime in the market I think for the last 10 years there was kind of governmental support for the market mhm or at least it was the just message. a tad
3: 120 just billion a, tad. a month. Yeah, they,
4: they whatever it takes 120 billion a month. I think that yeah. that was a, a very important part of people increased willingness to take risk because they thought they had an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they had or not, that's not really matter. They believe they did, so they acted accordingly. And I think that that has somewhat changed. Um, I think politically the number one concern is inflation. That's not a new idea. I think it's there. Um, I think the fear that politicians have is always not getting elected and I think that they believe that the thing that will get them out of office is elevated inflation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before it was a fear of market going down. Now it's a fear of inflation. So I think that's the that the focus has changed to that, and I found it very interesting that uh, Joe Biden reappointed Powell uh, back in November. There were doubts about it. I think it was a brainer that uh, was considered was considered mm-hmm. more. Uh, so November twenty second, Powell was reappointed. Kind of as it was a, to me it was a bit of a surprise uh, because Powell had always been dovish. I mean, when Paolo was appointed the first time, was a very hawkish central bank. Then he... Until the pivot, like, a couple months later. (laughs) Yeah. Then then he changed to please the powers that be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think he's kind of flexible in his approach. That's not very dogmatic. It's like he will do whatever he needs to do. And when he was reappointed, uh, we had an initial... Burst of enthusiasm, enthusiasm in the market. Nasdaq went to an all-time high, mm-hmm. reversed, and we haven't seen it. We haven't seen those prices since. And my interpretation of that is that Joe Biden and Powell got together, and Powell said, "Jerome, are you going to help me fly this inflation problem? If you say yes, you get reappointed." And he got reappointed. So right. I think that I think the focus has changed completely, um, and that has introduced turbulence in the market. We are in a new regime. Um, The reality is I don't know how this new regime will resolve itself. I don't know if we're going to go. I can see the scenario where we correct the excesses of the last few years. There are reasons to believe that. Last year, we had more inflows than the last 20 years combined. This dynamic has continued in 2022, and yet prices are lower. Mm -hmm. That is a very bad sign. A year ago, we had the same dynamic with ARK where they have massive inflows and prices started to move lower. That was kind of the beginning of the end. And that is something that I kind of pay attention to because when you have a lot of inflows and the prices don't move accordingly, that means that there is a lot of seller supplies on that side. Mm-hmm. That's that kind of negative. Like all these people, all the latecomers that came that bought at high prices, many of them are underwater. That doesn't make for a very good market. That means that people are in pain, weak hands. uh, They're going to be tired when it comes to putting money to work again. Um, And that is not a positive development. That is not good. Now, the other side of the argument is that maybe what we have seen in the last 12 months all these massive inflows was kind of like the beginning of a stampede away from cash as people realize that cash is not a very good asset in the long run. So this came mm-hmm. this could have been the beginning of a process in which money flows into any asset that is yielding. And we can we can we have seen that in other places mostly emerging markets, South Africa, Venezuela, Argentina, where the money gets devalued, and people get look protection in assets in stocks and real estate. So that could happen. But in the meantime, we have this process of readjustments to the new regime uh, when we went from, let's call it the Fed put, to the inflation focus. And so like things get rejiggled, and during that process we have all this noise. And I think that we're going through that. Um, that's why I'm quite happy to be away. This is a very treacherous market. You can lose a lot of money. It's very hard to make money. There is like no rhyme or reason. Uh, is the market looking for pain, looking for um, weak hands? And as I said, not not the time to be a hero. It's just much better to take a, take a step back and and let it settle. And then we will know. And it can take a few months, and if you take a step, as, if you step aside for a few months, you you probably will be happy. Until there's there's no reason to there's no reason to. I mean, let's say let's say the risk reward right here is is not is not good. Yeah, because uh, there is no real good direction.
2: Well, there's no reason to push the trade, and I'm, I'm assuming that your systems are also. You know, in your strict strict definition of trend, that hard screen is is not showing a lot of opportunities as well. There's
4: not there's not a lot of things. I mean, there are a few things, but it's not. <clears throat> we're not seeing a lot of things,
3: and the last few days hasn't changed that situation in any way.
4: Uh, in February, I mean, um, to give you an idea, we ended January ninety five percent in cash. Uh, we had one position, and we take we took three or four new ones in February. Uh, we exited a couple of them, so we have a, b- a bit more invested. There are some things that are doing well. Uh, actually, I'm going to put the letter out there next week, but uh, we have commodity inflation leak related materials, mortgages, things that are doing well. Um, but in general, we're not seeing a lot. Now, this could have been a bottom, or at least local bottom. But this program is not designed to pick bottoms because no. uh, you get yeah. smelly fingers when you do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: that's the point. You're not, you're not there to pick a bottom. And if, if I'm assuming, under the strict definition of trend that you're using, um, things will bubble up. And they're, they're, those things are probably not correlated particularly to what we're seeing in the market cap market space, right? The market cap. Yeah. And the S&P is dominated by a narrow group of stocks. It's got lots of technology in it. Yeah. So whilst the market, sort of like in 2000, is doing one thing, underlying the market in certain sectors, there's very different things going on. And But as you say, if you're in this regime shift, this is where you can get the chop suey on the whipsaws of getting in and getting stopped out. So having a very uh, strenuous scream to qualify as a trend that is something you'd invest in helps keep you out of it keeps me out but, of trouble. Yeah, it keeps you out of the out of the yeah. chop.
4: Yeah. Now, one thing that would be exciting, uh, and I mean, it's, it's possible, is that we have we entered something that is the opposite to what happened in the last twenty four months. Is that we have five thousand stocks, uh, the top hundred stocks don't do very much, so the indices don't do very much, but the other four thousand nine hundred stocks have dispersion. And maybe of those, there's a number of them that do very well. They, this will not be reflected in the indices, uh, but there will be opportunity for stock pickers, either systematic or discretionary, but <clears throat> there may be actually more opportunity for active managers than what we have seen in the last couple of years, because the top 100 stocks that dominate the indices don't do very well, and then the other ones do. Yeah. yeah, that's this a, a this is a very a good this point as well. Yeah, yeah,
2: very good point, right? If you if you have a universe of ten stocks and all those ten stocks have the same performance of ten percent, there's no dispersion, there's no opportunity to outperform. Um, and so what you want is you know ten a universe of ten stocks where you know you have dispersion. So a lot of some of them are up, some of them are down. And that at least gives the opportunity for outperformance or differentiation of performance.
4: Yeah. So, so we'll see. I mean. Uh the market is hey, like us like,
2: active managers can dream, right?
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see.
2: We'll see. Yeah, I agreed. We can dream. All right.
3: Well, look, All we're right, at yeah. we're at 93 minutes. Uh, Marcos, you've been very generous with your time. So thank you very much. No, thanks to you, guys. where can people find you?
4: Um I think the most visible is Twitter, my Goodman9. Uh there is a website, com. Uh, all my letters are on there. My contact details are on there. If anybody wants to talk about this, I'm always happy to.
3: Great. Um, for those of you still around, please don't forget to like and share so we can get other great guests like Marcos on the pod. Also a reminder, we've got Alex Gurevich on the podcast next Friday, um, who you know obviously is an amazing guest at any time, but I think may have some special perspective to bring um, uh, given where we are uh, on the geopolitical front. So um, be sure to tune in next week at four o'clock. Marcos, Mike, and Thank everyone you guys tuned in. Thank, Thank you so you. much.
1: Cue the music. Week. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.